0: Gentlemen, you are both drunk on cosmic wine.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Mark Sylvester.
0: And I'm Dr. Richard Schulman. This, this is All
1: Psych. So we got lights. We got, we got, got, got camera. Action. We got camera. We got camera. We got action. We are um, live. Oh, we're the action. That's why. Okay. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah, we're on, man. So... Or topic, it's a fun one, fun one for me.
0: Yeah, it's funny how deathbed visions and terminal lucidity would be a fun topic, but you know what? It is.
1: It is in this space. This is my safe place. The internet, bouncing around among other electrons, comfortable in the warm electronic soup that is the cyberwebs. So, get us started
0: with I the have mental a wellness mental wellness
1: tip. Wealth tip. Okay. Hit me. Um, the
0: idea is, you know, people talk about mental health. I think of it as mental wealth. If you kind of can master how your how your psyche works, you're way ahead of the game. So here's the tip for today. Your brain believes everything you say, so be careful what you say. Uh, especially people who are very negative, it's gonna bring you down. Um, my old mentor, the uh, the spy guy, Every, his arm could be hanging by a thread. You ask him, how are you doing? He'd go, excellent. So one day I said, why, why do you always say that? He says, my brain believes what I say. I'm programming myself for excellence. So I suggest everybody out there, watch what you say, okay? Because your brain
1: believes it. I like it, I like it. What do you think's more harmful, negative self-talk or, or negative talk from those closest to you—a spouse, a parent, or something—oh,
0: negative self-talk, far worse. Yeah. Well, yeah you see, me- when you're a kid, when you're a kid, somebody else's negative talk becomes your negative self-talk. Now, I just, I just x those people out. You know, I'm, I'm not allowing that in
1: my life. But what's interesting, I think most people would agree with that—that that negative self-talk is bad. But they're simultaneously the most likely to engage in negative self-talk because they don't put the qualitative emotional value on it as they do the logical like yeah yeah it's bad to say like well i'm such
0: an idiot or whatever
1: but much more harmful negative self-talk on the positive side your body hears it all your thoughts are energy and and positive self-talk is very good for programming well, you know,
0: and, and uh, I did a lot of sports psychology, and that was really important with athletes. Athletic performance was very much connected to a positive attitude.
1: Well, as Stuart Small says, "I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me." Anybody liked him. I don't know. I think they do. Stuart Small is really no. They like you. I don't know about Stuart. oh, oh yeah, yeah. They love me. Yeah, that's true. All two of our viewers. So let's kick it off, let's kick it off. Deathbed visions and terminal lucidity. I think we're going to be bouncing back and forth between the two because they're both like peri-dying phenomena. Um, They can occur, I think, uh, mutually exclusive, but they, they both come up usually in the final hours, days, sometimes weeks but it's usually limited to the final week before bodily death yeah and i say bodily death because we got some creepy stuff to talk about with terminal lucidity it's pretty neat so i mean deathbed visions you know we got to define that like we always define it some people call it death related sensory experiences some i've heard it referred to as veridical hallucinations which is kind of an oxymoron um, visions of the dying, end of life experience. I thought about including it in the near death, out of body, and shared death episode, but man, well, that was a packed full thing. Uh, some people call it near, nearing death awareness um, or even pre death visions, but the whole deathbed visions um, became, I think, in like, uh, uh, it was coined not that long ago. And you would think it's like kind of an obscure, rare phenomenon but i want in case i forget to say it by the end of the show i want anyone watching this whoever meets or talks to a hospice nurse to ask them about this and i will promise you every single hospice nurse has experienced this deathbed visions are common uh we don't talk about them in our culture which i think is unfortunate because they're extremely healing even if it's the last uh you know, vestige of a dying brain and it's completely delusional and and, and hallucinations. It's healing. It's calming. It eases transitions. It eases the dying process. It's beautiful for the family who's left behind to see this kind of, um, experience happen. So. I uh,
0: actually experienced it with my mother's death. Um, she was very wound up, very anxious. And I, um, brought in a therapist, uh, Anita Blackwell, if you're out there, I still thank you for what you did for my mom. She had a couple of sessions, my mom was clear. And then she says to me, uh, your grandmother and Louisa, that was her godmother, your grandmother and Louisa were here today. And uh, I knew she was getting ready. She was getting ready to go. And the, I guess the welcoming committee was there for her. And uh, it was actually a great comfort to me you know, to, to know that, that she was experiencing that. Now you could say she was hallucinating if you want, but I don't go there I, because, you know, I, I don't really believe in death. I believe in trans, trans, uh, transmutation that we, we, we become transformed, but I don't, you know, uh, I don't go there. So I was just really happy. And I think that when families hear this, they are really happy.
1: And they, and they witness it and they, and they see it. And, you know, we got, we got to define it a little bit more so that people know what to look for and why it's so healing. Um, I guess from a historical perspective, like I said, the, the term deathbed visions kind of came into the Western world through our token dead white guy of the day, William Barrett. Um, he wrote a book in 1926, which was eponymous, epino- hip hop eponymous. Why can I never pronounce that word? Eponymous.
0: It's not, uh, it's not one that comes up all that often.
1: It was called Deathbed Visions. I like that better. 1926. You know, he reminds me a little bit of Ian Stevenson, the late, great British uh, um, para- yeah, I want to say parapsychology researcher, but he, he was more than that to me. Uh, spent his whole life traveling all over the world studying similar type of phenomenon um didn't you study with him for a while bruce grayson was 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 his protege who i okay uh, yeah i went through all of his records handwritten notes you know and it was amazing seeing you stevenson you know and he was very serious very professional very scientific very british so you know smart guy um even sounded smart if he wasn't smart um, but his writings were really brilliant. They were anecdotes, much like William Barrett's works on deathbed visions, where he collected these experiences. Um, and he never categorized them. It was more like Raymond Moody, kind of a storyteller thing. Um, but it show, it shone light on all of the kind of components, whether that's seeing dead friends or relatives, um, hearing the sound of Uh, music or other deathbed phenomenon, um, including possibly spirit communication. So it's really kind of what put it on the map. So we're looking at a hundred years ago already. Raymond Moody talked about it in the seventies and he kind of led that that was more of a evidence of an afterlife and and we'll see why. Um, And kind of why there are holes in the hallucination hypothesis. That I think are, are reasonable size holes, but the terminal lucidity po- portion of the deathbed vision is kind of when um, observers, family members, hospital personnel—you know, if they're at a hospice house, or there's usually someone with them twenty-four-seven. Even at home, hospice uh, are are in in some form or another. So these people are kind of watched twenty-four-seven. I mean, they're 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 attended to in that. So these are good historians for um, bystanders or for observers, but as we know, eyewitness testimony, of course, is the most unreliable in, in terms of, you know, court and stuff like that. But in, in issues like this and qualitative experience, I think it's really important because, you know, certainly the healthcare team is more objective than the family member who may want to see this or may want to believe this. But the, like I said, you stop any uh, hospice nurse. The next one that you meet, you ask them and, and, you know, leave negative feedback if we're wrong on this, but (laughs) family members will report that, you know, that that their loved one's been weak, maybe in a coma, maybe they've got advanced dementia and they haven't spoken in years. Uh, It really doesn't matter. Uh, There's actually even cases of some mental disability. So somebody maybe who's been intellectually disabled as the preferred nomenclature their entire life, all of a sudden they are suddenly alert, they're revived, sometimes they sit up, um, they interact in a way that they hadn't in like a really long time or hadn't ever, which is especially interesting when you think about the hallucination or or the dying brain hypothesis. Um, Of course they, will a lot of times be talking to someone in the room, which is commonly historically thought was part of a delirium, Um, but they're fixed. Usually on the corner of a room, they can call out the name of a deceased loved one. They can be talking to that loved one. No one else can. uh, Well, that's not always true. Sometimes there's been claims of other people seeing apparitions that they were talking to, which is fun too, Um, but Usually deceased people, they don't see Elvis because we all know Elvis is still alive. Um, It's his birthday. It is today. I didn't get him anything. (laughs) Elvis, I got you this mug. (laughs) Extreme close up. Mm. Mm. I love that. (sighs) I feel awkward. Um, Sometimes the bystander itself does have the same vision. It's like a shared death experience but now it's a shared deathbed vision, which is super cool. Um, supposedly, do you, you think that people need uh, to have
0: something like this to allow themselves to let go?
1: I don't think they have a need. I think it can play a role in it. Certainly, it can play a role in it. Um, and, and you know, it brings up a good point. Uh, you know when you get that close to dying I do think you have a lot more influence on the timing of your death like I, I you know I can concentrate as hard as I want right now about dying and I'm probably not going to overpower my biology or even influence in it now if I did negative self-talk every day I might give myself cancer in 20 years or something but I think in that last week of life there's evidence um and again the hot, stop a hospice nurse they're the experts they will tell you this day in and day out that you know so and so hung on until the family arrived and then died shortly after yeah, or you know the spouse was at the bedside 24 7 because they didn't want the, their, their their spouse dying alone but what they didn't know is the spouse didn't want to die in front of them and so the one time they get got up to use the bathroom is when that person died they'll tell you both of those because some people prefer to not die in front of their loved ones um, other people hang on until they get there so I think that last week you actually can will yourself to hang on and push and fight and it and it changes your death date to some degree which is really interesting thought that you brought up there I heard uh, I had was it Johann? Johann Sebastian Bach supposedly uh, even regained his eyesight, his vision um, during a deathbed vision. Uh, And it wasn't like, oh, I'm hallucinating and seeing things. He finished his final composition uh, with his vision returned, which uh, was thought to be related to his deathbed vision, his eyesight. So that's pretty cool. That is very cool. Yeah, we wouldn't have got his last work, which yeah. I... Okay,
0: so I'll give you a different kind of question. So if these if openings occur, is it because a person is physiologically in a different place, or just psychologically they're in the who gives a rip, I'm going to die kind of place? Th-
1: my ver- my th- 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 opinion, thought, estimate is that probably 90% of it is that their physiology is hanging on by a thread, but 10 of it is the power of intention. So, um, you know, that's why I can't will myself dead right now because my 90% physiology is overpowering it.
0: Yeah, but it does, it just kind of occurs to me since uh, I do a lot of mind-body work that if the physiologically, physiology is compromised, maybe some of the armoring is also compromised and people can be clearer. I know um, it was, but it was not right before my mother died. It was a couple of, it was about maybe two weeks before. And uh, she had all kinds of insights into her life that uh, I was shocked that she would say the things that she said. And one of them I remember saying, I wish you would have told me that 30 years ago, you would have saved me a lot of money in psychotherapy. Because I could never figure out why you did what you did.
1: I think that's a perfect, whatever the reverse dovetail is, to our show last week, when we were talking about Thomas Edison and, and you know, uh, hypnagogia and hypnopompy. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, when you're focused inward or you're not, you know, spending neurons on, on walking and talking and thinking and yada, yada, I, I do think that inspiration and creativity goes up, and, you know, much like in a hypnagogic state. So when your body's failing around you and and maybe your thoughts are, are focused on more existential issues, not like, did I do my taxes? Um, I think that that creativity center definitely goes up. I think you get more in touch with your true nature, your true self. Um, creativity seems to go up again. I mean, yeah, you could say, okay, well, Bach, that's what he did was write music. Yeah. Yeah. But that was what was important to him in his final days, really. So he got this huge inspiration. Um, and like you've talked about writing music, he heard music in his head and he com- and he put it down. So I think that the creativity definitely goes up in, in some cases, in other cases, it may go down because you're hanging on, um, you know, I, the, some of the work I did with Bruce Grayson was specifically on death anxiety. And anxiety in general, pain, depression, those are things that block, cut us off from our true self. They, they, they make it more difficult to access uh, our higher self, creative centers and stuff like that. So if you're really focused on, I don't want to die, um, and there's terror there, a lot of people have, I mean, I could we could do a whole show on death anxiety, add it to the list because uh, I did a lot of work in that in that region in that in that area, and it was quite fascinating um, the categories that people fall into to what they're anxious about dying, you know, whether that was if it would be painful, or is there a God or an afterlife, or am I going to hell and yada, yada, spoiler alert. I don't want to give too much there, but the higher centers, I would think, would be much more likely to be active. And maybe that's why they do get in tune with spirit realms, astral planes, whatever the connection is, um, or some sort of a early life review process.
0: It it does sort of fit in with some of the stuff we've talked about regarding out of body experiences where let's say people who are uh, undergoing surgery will find themselves floating in the surgical theater and can see all kinds of things that they shouldn't ordinarily be able to see. And I guess part of the reason that you and I are doing this, you know, non-ordinary mind gig is uh, just expands people's awareness of what it means to be human. You know, these are, these are, you know, we're calling it non-ordinary, but it's actually part of being human.
1: Well, I think it's our nature. And I think that consensus reality and the focus that we have, you know, not to just blame social media and, and. And, and more modern th- video games or whatever that it, i i just mean human nature has evolved to be very very frontal lobe heavy
0: oh yeah.
1: And, yeah and that's way before
0: social media my friend uh, that's...
1: that is way before social media and that cuts us off from the uh, our higher self and a centered self so the uh, yeah i would argue. That's the ordinary mind. That's the true mind, the true nature, and non-ordinary is what we're doing right now. This is what I call consensus reality because I like the word consensus because it's very bland emotionally. I agree. (laughs) You agree. You know, we all agree, because reality, especially in the uh, in the last year, has been um, revealing to of itself that it's highly subjective yeah I was so reality
0: was a crutch for people who couldn't handle psychedelics you know
1: but i like that can we yeah. print that on a mug austin <laughs> yes <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> my beef with the um the delirium hallucination theory probably one of my biggest beefs is it doesn't make evolutionary sense um, what, that, what does that mean? Deathbed, uh, almost everything that happens to us, at us, physiologically, but even psychologically or neurologically, you can at least have a reasonable or provable reason why it's advantageous evolutionarily. Um, a near death experience, a deathbed vision. Not so much because uh,
0: I, I would counter that, but it depends how how you define evolution.
1: Okay. let me, let me get let me, biologic let me, evolution. How about Yeah, well,
0: biologic for sure. But let's say spiritual, if you believe in an afterlife, and you also believe that how you go into that afterlife will determine some of your experiences of it. If you go in with tremendous anxiety, it's going to create one experience. You go in feeling comforted by the fact that your mother shows up, or your grandmother, or a loved one shows up and says, "Here, come on with me. We're going to go." Um, that
1: sounds like a great comfort. What evolutionary purpose does comfort have in the moments or days before dying? You're not going to pass that trait on to your offspring. Deathbed. Well, but
0: you may come back a better. You may come back a better person.
1: Okay, so that's spiritually evolutionary. That's what I was. Yeah, not biologically. But I was,
0: and, and that's great. But it, but it may also it may also affect your family. I mean, if your fam, if if your family is comforted by your death, the way you die, um, I would say that it really could have a, a positive impact on your family. And you know, uh, we're looking you and I in our work. We're looking for any little shred of positivity that we can connect with. And, you know, I I certainly could see that, people um, being comforted about, well, you know, she's with grandma and everything's
1: okay. Well, one thing we always try to do on here, and I think that we're reasonably good at, and I probably wouldn't have been 20 years ago, is marrying science and spirituality more, that they're not, you know, diametrically opposed, but you think from either the science end or the spiritual and it's hard to always ride the middle. But so talking about evolutionary biology, talking about natural selection, um, survival of the fittest, Charles Darwin, there really is no purpose. There's no reason. Um, and it doesn't make sense biologically or evolutionarily. Spiritually, maybe. Spiritually by proxy, super interesting. So if I lose my fear of death because I saw granny pass peacefully, I'm going to live my life a little bit differently. That's what I'm referring
0: to. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you just blew our viewer's skulls. Wasn't <laughs> that our job? Hey, fun fact. Well, you've already read It's a cheater. Pretend like you don't know this. Who's the most likely entity, individual relative to show up statistically in a deathbed vision. Well, you already said it's Elvis. After Elvis, I don't know. I don't know, who is it? Mother. Okay. Pontificate on that, I just like that. I I mean, it shows the mothers are- It makes perfect sense actually. Mothers are are the ultimate creators and nurturers in and out of life and death. And I think that's really interesting that you could be a hundred years old. It's your mother who comes to, to walk you to the to the tunnel or whatever.
0: Well, you know, it 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 makes a certain amount of emotional sense since you spend nine months in the womb, you know, and they don't put you down once that there
1: would be an imprinting, you know, some kind of soul. See, I would have thought number two would have been number one, but what's that? Who's behind? Who's behind mother? Oh, you mean daddy? angels or religious icons angels Angels. or religious religious architects religious figures although there have been cases of militant atheists seeing jesus um they're usually culturally specific um which you know you can interpret however you want but family member friends a lot of times pets which i find really interesting um pets actually make more sense to me well, there's a lot of deathbed coincidence involving animals, not only, you know, the, what was that, Tampa, where you had the cat that would jump up at the, at, 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 on the bed. Um, yeah, I've heard and that. Yeah. within 24 hours, the the patient had died, person, they weren't. Now, really... You know, every
0: every family has their legends and, you know, I don't know, myths. The myth in my family growing up was if a pet dies, they're waiting for the, next person to die they're going to to be that part of that greeting committee and i i don't know it was a, we had a dog that died in in august of 1965 and then my grandmother died in october and i, and I remember my mother had said that long before any you know any of this happened so it might have just been an incredible coincidence but i did notice it
1: well you know, we, we could talk a lot about the animals. I, I would say the two most common um, are, are behaviors are, are one, like the cat that would jump up on the bed, and two, um, barking, kind of like alerting, um, like a service animal would do. A lot of times seeing, animals apparently are staring at the same thing that the dying person is staring at, which could be queuing. Could be that you just can't see that there's a a ghost or an entity or a spirit or a being or something like that. But there are other coincidences that occur like clock stopping. A lot of times if people die with a wristwatch, their watch stops at the moment of their death. Really? That really occurs. Very interesting. Very odd. So there's other deathbed coincidences, um, you know whether that's their spirit leaving their body and you know passing through some sort of mechanical sensitive mechanical device or um, and then it, it it interfering with it. I don't know, but that that should be just generally known that there are deathbed coincidences. Obviously, we've heard about this. A mother, you know, across the country knows that their child has died or been in an accident and died. Um, so there's tons of coincidence like that too. I think the problem with talking about this, I've learned over the years, is one: it brings up people's uh, own mortality, and they're not comfortable with that, which is understandable. You know, that is evolutionarily uh, important to to be afraid of dying. Uh, that does make a difference whether or not you you re- reproduce up until a point. I mean, we're at a point where we live long, long, long lives, long past our useful our, our, our ability to reproduce typically. Um, But most people hear the story about the cat jumping on the bed and be like, oh, man, I'd kick that thing off the bed and be like, get out of here, you know, you (laughs) harbinger of death. But anyone in the hospice and palliative medicine world um, knows that we live in a death denying culture. And the the goal of hospice isn't to prevent death, it's to ease suffering. It's actually to to, uh, uh, unintentionally prolong life. Because a lot of times when that, you know, aggressive, let's intervene, let's give them chemo, let's, you know, give them all these tubes, and um, it actually is proven to shorten life. People tend to do better um, on a palliative medicine hospice when their quality of care is better. And ironically, sometimes they pick up quantity as, as just a bonus, which is another important misconception. But... It's very uh, cathartic, it's very rewarding. Uh, All all these nurses really are good at their job, they love it, they describe it as very sacred. So if a cat jumps up on a bed, it's a celebration. It's a celebration that that this person's time is near, you know, probably the 24 hour thing. So the cat isn't like shooed away or, um, you know. Now personally, I would kick the cat off the bed just because I think that they're Satan's creatures, but that's unrelated. It's not because of the fear of death. I'd kick him off the bed and be like, thanks. Uh, I got 24 hours to get my affairs in order. But uh, yeah, so mothers, angels, uh, deathbed coincidences, all, all goes along with it. And then the terminal lucidity piece of it, coming back that for a <coughs> sec, which some people call the rally before death, which is a very real thing. I've definitely seen all of this, by the way, with my... Um, fellowship with um, hospice and palliative medicine down in Fort Um, Lickerdale. Some people call it the final push. Some people call it the end of life rally. Um, There's a physical push, like uh, somebody can be very weak in a coma and then they become more alert and family thinks, oh, wow, they're getting better. And then they're dead. Um, Similar kind of paradoxical thing that you see when someone has committed To suicide you know they their mood actually lightens because they see an end of their suffering and the family was like well they seemed like they were getting better last week and Uh, I used
0: to when I worked inpatient I used to warn my staff uh, you know when these people are really depressed you better watch it when they get better that's the danger point
1: yeah and that's they have more energy you know that's what we're trained to, to you know separate the hundreds of people that tell us but they're having suicidal thoughts from the ones that we're really concerned about or losing sleep about or really think uh, are, are going to be able to complete it. Uh, I have it's- a
0: question for
1: you. When you say terminal lucidity,
0: what is, is that just the rallying or is it like certain awarenesses? What, what does that exactly So mean?
1: Yeah, that's what I was trying to separate out. There's a physical part of it, but there's also the mental clarity. Now, if you have somebody that... Um, and actually, I'm, I'm trying to remember, there may be evidence that they actually can speak in another language, if I'm remembering that correctly, or a language that they hadn't spoken for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually a primary language. So maybe they were like five years old and they grew up in, in, a, in a Spanish-speaking South American country, not really exposed to English, but they moved to the States. All they've ever known was English, right? Um Maybe they didn't even speak Spanish, but they did up until they were five years old. So, you know, some people think the dying process is like life backwards, a Benjamin Button thing, uh, except a double reverse, I guess. So those last days might be analogous to your first years of life. And so it's like they would forget that they knew Spanish and then all of a sudden be speaking Spanish. A lot of weird stuff like that does occur, but it really has to do with mental clarity, articulation. Um... Um, what's the opposite of delirium? Not sentience, but... Uh, clarity, clarity, wouldn't it? Yeah, be? clarity. Yeah, Ultimately, clarity, whereas, whereas they hadn't been clarity, clear for weeks or months. And then, boom, it's just this stark clarity. So that's more what the lucidity refers to. Um, I
0: actually had that with the husband of one of my patients who had Alzheimer's. And he hadn't been clear in a long time. And he got completely clear for just a little bit i have
1: some theories on like a
0: minute like a minute and a half told her all this stuff and then see ya
1: one of my favorite shows that i know no one who watches and i just pray someone on the internet is like rock on Is a show called travelers and uh
0: yeah
1: a lot of times that will happen right before death you know that i don't want to spoil it but they send consciousness back and uh at the last couple seconds before someone's dying, um, this other consciousness comes out, which which kind of is similar. It's a nice little twist on this, but really the two types, I guess, are of, of terminal lucidity is like a gradual one. It usually comes on like a week before, and that would be more aligned with the physical route rallying. Uh, it could be an adrenal push that the body realizes that it's dying and it turns up, you know, adrenals to try to, you know, get away from the proverbial saber tooth tiger. But the other type comes rapidly, hours before death. That one's a little tougher to explain. Um, there's usually an intention behind it, such as making plans, talking about, you know, sometimes they've already seen a departed loved one who said, um, I guess they're telling the dying person, I'll be back on Friday. Uh Get your bags packed. Get get ready. Get your affairs in order. We're going to the party. These are things that I heard all, all the time on hospice units. Uh, and if that person's demented, you're kind of like, okay, well, they're just doing what demented people do and, and saying things. Um, the problem is they don't shake it. So they every day they keep talking about Friday, Friday morning. You know, they're coming. There's the party, and and. Even on Friday morning, they are up early and getting all cleaned up and getting making sure that they're dressed and ready. And lo and behold, they die on Friday morning. Not even like Friday afternoon or Saturday. It's as if they saw the future. But in this case, it would be they were told essentially when they were gonna die. Now how they keep track of the days of the week and the afterlife, I don't know about that, but a lot, I wanna believe, I wanna believe.
0: Well, it just kind of occurs to me that that this topic of deathbed visions and terminal lucidity is as much for the people around the dying person, really more for them, because the dying person is just, you know, see it. Amen. Um, but um, So that you said it earlier, so you live better. You live without nearly as much fear. You know, and, and there's, there's a certain kind of fear that like you touch a hot stove, you've got to move away. But there's some of the fears that we have are just stupid. You know, we, we fear being successful. We fear, uh, we fear being humiliated so we don't try things, you know? If you have that sense of clarity about what about your life, maybe you can live with greater
1: meaning. I, th- I think you use the word intensity too. Well, um, we talked about it when, I, we, we talked about near-death experiences because I said that was something that happened to me very early in life and it definitely shaped my life in a lot of ways not just a sense of you know this not being the only state of perception of being but yeah bigger questions uh is there are, is there an afterlife um but i think the the biggest change and it's hard to know because i was awful young but just comparing myself to other people that haven't had a near-death experience any at any point much less at a young age i've never had a fear of death um, now that doesn't mean that, that I have a death wish. Um, the only thing I've had that closely resembles a fear of death is since my kids were born, because not wanting to you know, leave them behind. But that's not a fear of death for me. Like to me, it, you know, it comes when it comes. Like the great Pink Floyd song says, why should I be afraid of dying? You know, we all got to go sometime.
0: Well, you know what I'm always confronting people with is you're not afraid of dying you're afraid of living, you know, but I I think that this this topic is very cool in in exploring, I go back to expanding maybe better than exploring what it means to be human, and how we can better connect with each other in these experiences that go across cultures and across time. You know that We have, I, I you know, I haven't had a near-death experience, but I had out-of-body experiences. You know, I've had uh, psychic experiences, intuitive hits. And knowing loved ones who've been through this kind of thing makes the whole idea that of being human more, um, there's a word I'm blocking on, that that everything has more meaning. Everything has more meaning um, th- when you take death, and we we don't like to think about death in this culture. We want to run from it.
1: Death-denying
0: culture. We want extra innings. You know, we don't, we you know, even if it makes the ball game more boring, you know, we're looking for extra innings rather than an elegant or a mindful death.
1: But you know what you're describing right now, well, Memento Mori the ethos of Memento Mori, which is essentially that we're all, you know, that's goes back to the Greeks, the the Latins, uh, we talked about this, I think, on the the Temple of Delphi episode, but that, you know, we all are uh, dying from the moment we're born and being aware of death uh, affords you an opportunity to live a more conscious um, life. And so that's something I've always been drawn to and fascinated. It certainly exists much more prevalent in other cultures, but U.S. is pretty darn death-denying. So, um,
0: okay, so as we, we, you know, we're sort of starting to wrap up this topic, what, what occurs to me is if, my mother saw my grandmother and her godmother, whom I loved too, and I knew knew them both very well. That, if you want to believe that it's true and not just a hallucination, and we could debate this ad nauseum, I choose to believe it's true, by the way, hence the term belief, right? It's a great comfort to me to know that my mother was taken care of at that moment.
1: Yeah, it's tremendously healing for the And man. a great
0: comfort to me to, you know, and I've had people, in fact, several of them who are on the other side right now who have said before they went, I'll be there when you go, don't worry. You know? Yeah. And, and that idea that we die um, with confidence. I, I studied with a man named onion An- Rinpoche An- An- who actually wrote a book called Dying with Confidence. And it, it was brilliant. And, and I just... If you're out there uh, Rinpoche, hi, how you doing? Um, but it, it was just brilliant. And the idea the idea is that you, you choose a mindful death and that it's a very spiritual event and does help your soul to move forward because there are certain moments in your soul's evolution that you have the opportunity to move forward. And, and that he claimed that that was a great opportunity. I think just you know, kind of hanging out and saying hi to grandma, you know, it was is pretty cool, you know. That and and you know, when we have visitations, not a deathbed, but I think that deathbed, there's such an intensity of the transition that it makes everything more meaningful, and that's why these visions and awarenesses are so important.
1: Well, and. Like you were talking about with the dementia, um, someone who's been demented for a long time, you're certainly not expecting at any point, much less shortly before their death, for them to spring away and be lucid and talk as if they were in their 30s or whatever again. Um, But one study showed 10% of dementia patients will experience sudden improvement before death. Now that's very startling because it shakes the foundation of of what is dementia exactly. and what does it take for us to be human and interact and have sentience and intellect if we know the hardware's messed up the neocortex is messed up i think just like your you know your body's pulling all of its energy to its core um you know you often get really cold hands and blue fingernails and stuff like that for days on end um of course, the, the GI system shutting down, people aren't uh, desiring uh, liquids or foods anymore and, and blood shunted to the heart and the core uh, and, and, and the brain. You might get a very similar thing going on with the brain and, the, and it would shut down in a reversed, uh, again, evolutionary way. The frontal lobe is really not important at that point. It's really not necessary. Arguably the neocortex, which is a huge gobbler of, of food, you know, thirty percent of our glucose is in that three-pound goo. That's a that's high-priced real estate. Okay. Um, and if you're malnourished, and again, fasting, we've talked about having non-ordinary experiences. Then you're relying more on the core, the brain, the reptilian brain, and consciousness is still there. So, uh, how in the world do these people undement in the moments, uh, an hours, sometimes within a week uh, before doing that? um you you get get that mental thing but then back to the physical people or the physical phenomenon there are people that are really struggling with um delirium they're thrashing they're they're violent um worst case scenario they may even have to be put in restraints and all of a sudden poof no more pain no more unrest um they wake up and say (coughs) why am i in these restraints come on that's, uh, that's a phenomenon that's quite, quite common, and there's no medical explanation for this. Um, and it, like you said, it goes across time and cultures. That's why I am interested in all these topics because they're shared human experiences and often involve animals as well. But, well, the
0: thing I, I love about you is uh, one of many things is that you do try to explain this. I just take the tack of, well, it's a mystery, you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I still, still have my left brain. It's not delayed. Yeah, I, I
0: just want to embrace the mystery and uh, not be so afraid of it.
1: But the medical literature on terminal lucidity probably predates even deathbed visions, which I think is kind of interesting. C- certainly, the medical literature for a couple hundred years has talked about this unexplained mental clarity and alertness um, as, as being a sign that the patient had less than a week to live. That's the medical I,
0: I've read that in mystical texts that it was three days. And that was yeah. exactly what happened with my mother when she had the, the vision of my grandmother and then she just relaxed and she was fine. And in fact, she was the clearest she had been in, in weeks. You know, yeah. uh, it was really quite impressive, but I had, to, I had no illusion that she was getting better. You know, I, I took that as a signal she was ready to go.
1: And a lot of times they'll let, they'll let you know as well. Dying people seem to have, um, well, one of my favorite hospice studies is, and I think we've talked about this on the show. I know you and I have talked about it. When they, when hospice um, researched who would be the most accurate at predicting their death, the, the doctors, um, either the specialists in life, meaning like their oncologist or whatever, versus a hospice doctor who's around this all the time and is the authority, right? Or the nurses who started hospice, Cicely Saunders, and uh, arguably spend way more time than the doctors do. <laughs> or the patients. And most people would, would go with doctors, nurses, and then patients. Um, and it's the exact opposite. Patients were the best at predicting oh, their own I, death. I would have predicted patients. And then nurses destroyed doctors. Yeah. Nurses were the next most accurate. Doctors could be off. Uh, you know, like I, I had my money on Terry Shibo. I lost a lot of money on that case because I thought she was going to be gone in a week, and she went on 19 years. So, well, you're upset about you that. teach you to bet. No, I think that's your first class ticket to the seventh circle of hell if you bet on on the on dying. Don't well, do... I do
0: know that my, my buddy who taught me astrology said you can't predict death from an astrological chart. Hmm. So there is that.
1: I can see that. Wow.
0: We certainly went all the way down the uh, rabbit hole in death fed visions of terminal Lucidily, Luc- lucidity. Oh, well, yeah. We had, we had some... I always thought terminal was a bad thing to have at an airport.
1: Yeah, I, don't know I mean, that always
0: struck me as, as something bad,
1: that terminal in airport you know. Well, this, 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 this is educational. I know I, I, I feel smarter. You are smarter. Yeah, that's because I had to do the research here. Oh, this. you're just
0: smarter. That's just who you are. You can't help yourself.
1: Well, I get excited about this topic because like I said, it's something I've done a lot of research on. I've got a lot of experience with. Uh, fun fact, I, I don't want to say it was a flip of a coin, but I was as close as one could possibly be at a fork in my career of doing a hospice fellowship um, versus psychiatry. Um, And it probably could have gone either way. Wow, Probably could have gone either way because I just found it so incredibly rewarding. Basically the antithesis of what everyone would think. Like, well, everyone's, every one of your patients dies. That's gotta be depressing. It's the least depressing thing, a field of medicine by far, not only is it rewarding, it is downright sacred to be privileged. I mean, it's a privilege to practice medicine. I've always felt that way. I, I took the hypocritical oath very seriously, um, the knowledge, all of it. But to be there and like you said, watch the family have closure and peace and, and, and a good death and a death with, with dignity and you know, surrounded by your loved ones and regaling stories of, of their life celebrating their life like that's to me one of the coolest things that we can possibly uh, share and experience and I had me, a
0: similar experience working on an oncology unit and yeah I worked, I worked pediatric oncology and it was, it was that's incredible. extremely
1: depressing for me
0: <laughs> well it was very depressing except for the idea that I was really helping the parents and we didn't lose that many kids but the the actual adult oncology unit those people were see the thing of it was and i guess this is sort of a nice place to to start wrapping up the awareness of those kids they were like 14 going on 45 it was they were amazing oh yeah and yeah. and the some of the people that i met on the on, the adult oncology unit had such great insights about life and were not opposed to sharing
1: them with me so yeah
0: cool.
1: we had we had one kid out of a thousand patients on our caseload and i it it just distro- it was tough it really destroyed me uh, one of the youngest patients i saw die on hospice was a 29 year old and i was 29 at the time and i remember looking yeah. down at the remnant of her of her body and and thinking about her ending her life and mine just beginning and that was brutal that was hard but the child could not that was not I couldn't deal with that as well with the sacred of the hospice. Uh, you know, it's still providing the same service, but I struggled with that one a lot more. And um, and oncology, you know, once the focus has shifted for, to to palliative medicine and hospice, it's completely different. Absolutely. What would have been depressing the day before on an oncology service is now not, and it's rewarding and sacred. So
0: goes you goes to show you how much your perspective means.
1: Yeah, there we go. Way to wrap it up with the mental wellness. That's
0: right. Your brain believes what what you say, people. So it's uh, good seeing you and talking to you. Uh, As always,
1: we should do this again next week. I I I got a topic in mind. Um, I am thinking next week, it might be a good uh, uh, segue into synesthesia and menage a trois. Oh, deja vu. I mix those up all the time. Deja vu all over again. Synesthesia and deja vu. Yeah, okay. So on join, that us. Note, one, join us next week. Two, three, four, be well. Be well. You you didn't you blew it. We've talked about this, Rich. Was oh. it one, two, three? You went on five that time. That was never right, on. One, two, three,
0: four, be well. That's music, man. That's I guess you're, it's about science.
1: All right, we'll work this out later. Be well. Be
0: well. <laughs>